Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Garki, and today I have with me uh, Dr. J. Daniel Elam. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of Hong Kong. He writes about activism, anti-colonial revolutionaries, anti-racist thinkers, third world solidarity, anti-apartheid movements, and aid activism. He is the author of many books, most notably of World Literature for the Wretched of the Earth, Anti-Colonial Aesthetics, Post-Colonial Politics, with, published with the Fordham University Press in 2020. And for this book, he has very kindly accepted to join me today. Hello, Dr. Elam. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, as always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas when you started writing this book? So, I mean, the book was originally a dissertation, uh, and that, that's the most kind of pragmatic line I took. But the dissertation and the kind of project overall began uh, with me asking a few questions, or ha- having a few questions about the kind of status of uh, political thought. I mean, I, w- I was, what I felt like uh, was absent in a lot of political theory was these, uh, was, was notions of kind of egalitarianism rooted in imperfection rather than perfection, utopias that were flawed or merely sufficient. And what I found, you know, what I found when I read thinkers like Pagat Singh, Hadayal, uh, but then later, you know, Gandhi and Ambedkar, uh, were that these were theorists to me that were really thinking through, a, you know, a makeshift meantime uh, project of egalitarianism, a project of really truly, which I which I find to be truly revolutionary in a kind of sense that it's not about perfectionism, it's not about kind of self-cultivation in some kind of, you know, in pure to purity sense. And, and I really thought that that was a kind of really exciting, revolutionary way of seeing, uh, of, of, of tracking our thinking through a political philosophy for a world that you that was not in existence. So it's a normative political philosophy, a world that was not yet here, which should absolutely be here. And what to do when we aren't living in that world and before we get to that world. And so I, I, that was the, that was a kind of question that I found myself asking over and over again. How do these thinkers think through that? And especially at a moment in the 1920s and 30s, where um, you know, in the wake of World War One, uh, you know, the kind of truly a globally horrific war. You have uh, you have people really trying to figure out what to do um, now that the you know the so-called promises of the 19th century have been fulfilled in their most horrific form, and you have people trying to figure out what to do to recover a world that um, that might should have been you know that couldn't have ended up in World War One, and so you have this kind of pessimistic utopianism of the 20s that stretches around the world, but I think its most vibrant relief, really, I think its most vibrant forms are to be found in anti-colonial thought, especially in South Asia. You know, this is a moment when the British Raj is beginning to truly sour, uh, but it doesn't look like it's going to go away. So you have these thinkers who are trying to think about the horrors of colonialism, the the the, the, the injustices of empire, uh, and trying to imagine a world that absolutely must exist after that and without that. Uh, but it's not it's not here yet. And it might not. I mean, and, and I think the pessimism of the thirties and or the twenties and the thirties was that it. You know, I think I think I think for thinkers like Pagat Singh, for Gandhi, 
this was a world that they were not expecting to live to see. And certainly Lala Hardale and Bhagat Singh did not live to see it. Gandhi lived to see it in you got to look to see technically the end of independent uh the end of the british raj but wasn't you know not particularly you know, the world after 1947 was not the one that he'd imagined and the same was certainly true for Baker, who watched you know every kind of utopian vision that he had for an anti-caste politics you know, slowly get written out of the constitution he'd written you know into the 1950s so these so but i wanted to grab i wanted to kind of capture these thinkers um at a moment where they were their kind of most wildly imaginative because it they they because they did not have to hold it up to some rubric of success eventual success right and so this is a kind of an anti-colonialism the meantime for the for the you know and in the waiting room of history um um for those who won't live who those who won't likely live to see it come about which is going to be deeply flawed which is going to have lots of um imperfections which is going to be about um kind of minor ways of taking care of uh, our comrades and friends. I mean, that was what I was finding uh, was a really sort of vibrant, exciting conversation that was being had uh, around the world, but especially in South Asia and the British under the British Raj um, in the 1920s. And I was really kind of interested in, in, in staying there and figuring out what, you know, how that kind of thought came to be, what those conversations look like, and how we might kind of rethink anti-colonial thought without thinking about it uh, in some kind of, you know, post-47 looking backwards kind of way, but rather anti-colonial thought in that moment of its own creation. And that's, that was the, that's the project of the book. And before we come to South Asia, I want to uh, have a little detour at Franz Fanon, um, who also inspires, I think, the, the title of the book. And you have a very intriguing sentence that states that he lived long enough to silently examine and proofread Jean-Paul Sartre's preface to his work, only to end up feeling disappointed. And uh, I, I asked myself the possible reasons behind this disappointment and whether we have any evidence to support uh, his disappointment, the fact that he was disappointed. Did he write something? How was his reaction? So, uh, so the title is, so the title gives away the two kind of in, bookends of the book. One is World Literature, which is in, uh, in, you know, indebted to the kind of um, comparative philologists, uh, most of whom were Jews, uh, trying to escape Nazi Germany. So someone like Auerbach and uh, Wretched of the Earth, which is obviously, right, as you said, uh, 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 Franz Fanon. And um, the... I think that the, so the the disappointment I think that we're that you're talking about in this case uh, is both general and specific. One would be you know he he was he was according to kind of anecdotally he was uh, um, he was disappointed he he was disappointed though you know kind of necessarily happy I guess with friends uh, with Jean Paul Sartre's introduction. I mean Jean Paul Sartre's giving your book an introduction in the nineteen sixties and nineteen fifties was a huge deal. I mean, this is a celebrity endorsement. But yet that introduction to the Wretched of the Earth um is a is a kind of is a is a in some ways just a wild misreading. Uh, I mean I don't want to claim that I have the right reading of Fremont, but the, this the, in this introduction seems perpetually uh, uh, exceptionally um misguided. Uh so I mean so anecdotally right Franz Fanon was disappointed with the introduction, though he knew it was a sort of requirement for getting this book on um on the shelves, um, so there's that disappointment. That that that's that that's the kind of sort of rumors, anecdotes, um, you know, friends of friends and friends and friends of friends and in, in books saying. Then the disappointment that I think I was trying to capture, uh, you know, in the sentiment of that, right, was uh, you know this this disappointment in that I mean, friends for not is writing at a moment this is in the late fifties, uh, and early sixties. This is a moment where 
Uh, I mean, it's certainly like the, that, that's I mean, Brentano was on his deathbed. He he didn't he didn't quite. He lived only a few days after the publication of um, of the book. So I mean, so disappointment after that is difficult to know. Uh, doesn't exist. Um, but uh, you know, the disappointment, kind of more broadly, that I think I was trying to capture there was the disappointment that comes about around the night in the mid nineteen fifties, late nineteen fifties. I'm trying to think more about this now, actually. Um, around the world uh, that is technically post-colonial, but certainly isn't. And, 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 and I guess in Franz Fanon's case, right, he, thinking about French Africa and French Caribbean, uh, that that world was still very much in place. The French Empire was quite strong uh, and very and 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 very nasty and active. That one. So, the, but the disappointment I think that I was again the disappointment that I was trying to capture was this one where the world that was supposed to have been brought about was not particularly different than the world that um, that existed before it. And so, the, the, so Franz Fanon's disappointment that the colonial world continues to live on and that anger that you can see the rage that you see uh uh the the, the kind of the really phenomenal anger that you see coming off the page in wretched of the earth uh you know alongside this kind of really careful meditation on on a number of different things right that is that's a disappointment of a world that should be otherwise and still yet isn't and i think that's what i was trying to capture there um, um and we'll come to world literature but before um just to uh, you know, bother you a little bit more about the disappointment. You you say that Fano had the skill to communicate effectively with his uh, fellow anti-colonial thinkers while remaining comprehensible to the colonizers. And is that where, is that the interpretation that we can take from this, that these anti-colonial thoughts are not open to the colonizer? So I think there's a, uh, I think there's a, there's a way that I want to read that, that I think it's not, I mean, the, the colonizer's incomprehensibility is is a choice of the colonizer, right? I mean, when you read Jean-Paul Sartre's introduction, you see this kind of bravado that actually sort of prohibits him from even reading Fanon, right? So it's not that Fanon is incomprehensible. Clearly, if he was incomprehensible, we couldn't read him. But there's a certain type of, uh, um, there's a certain type of, writing which is made possible in which anti-colonialism makes possible which is about an infinitely open invitation to comrades and friends and and you know you know, infinite family right so this infinitely open invitation sometimes to the point of being dangerous right which allows Fanon to speak uh, kind of this kind of wildly inclusive you know uh, first the first person plural we Right. He, he, this is his, his address is all is you often uses this kind of comrades. We must blah, 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 blah. So he's this kind of infinitely open first person plural uh, as a form of invitation. And yet, right, even as he's speaking to comrades, people who wish to be his comrades, people uh, who uh, you know, are in an anti-colonial mission with him, right, he can never like that. That is a moment of wild comprehensibility and wild. You, you, he can be understood. Right? Uh, and yet, right. Uh, certain you know, colonialism then renders that comradeship, that infinite orientation, either as a threat or as a, either as a kind of an exclusive we. Um, and so it's that which is the incomprehensible. It's not it's not the fundamental incomprehensibility of France for not that would be uh, unfortunate. Uh, I mean, selfishly speaking, but um, uh, but it's 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 in fact kind of it's an open invitational first person plural. Um, which renders something comprehensible to comrades while remaining, while, while, while theorizing its own kind of incomprehensibility to 
power uh, to authority, to colonial authority. You think, and then, and then, so the person who gets it the, the best for me uh, in the book if it, uh, is Gandhi, right? Gandhi, who creates this, this impressive set of vocabulary to describe what he's up to, um, borrowing from Sanskrit, borrowing from Gujarati, translated to English, translated back to Sanskrit, translated back to Sanskrit, Gujarati. I mean, it's kind of wild backflips of vocabulary and lexicon. That make you know, that, that make possible a, a sort of vocabulary of anti-colonialism, but a vocabulary of non-violence, right? So ahimsa, brahmacharya, uh, satyagraha, all of these words uh, um, that he he is able to use to be both comprehensible, both you know understandable in a new sort of way, but also wildly incomprehensible. Imagine and imagine uh, showing up to London and speaking sans kind of gibberish Sanskrit um, uh, to your to, to the colonial power. I mean, this is kind of phenomenal of incomprehensibility, which is yet at the same time, you know, gesturing towards solidarity, comrades and friends. Yeah. And because of its comp incomprehensibility is a question, uh, we should talk about uh, philology and you have blended philology with anti-colonial thought. And I was wondering, because I have not come across many instances where these fields are used together or intertwined so seamlessly, is this integration a part of an ac academic tradition that I'm ignorant of, or is this something that you observed a need for while working on your sources? Um, I have to say, um, this, this is a fantastic question. It's a question that um, I have to admit hadn't occurred to me before, it, 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 uh, uh, last fall when someone asked me a very similar question, and it took me by surprise. I guess the, so. Let's say first is I no, it's not. You have not missed an academic field. You've not missed kind of a, a, a you know a, a new trend in academic study. I I wish I wish I could say that, but no, I think it 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 hasn't set itself up as a trend quite yet. But I must also admit uh, that it is equally true that I didn't put these two fields together because I thought that they should be, which is. A, but the the reason I put them together is I thought that they were and already in conversation. In my mind, they 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 were asking a similar question. So if, when you read the book, it doesn't seem very often that I am committed to making an argument that we should be reading anti-colonial and uh, philosophy and and philology together. I start with I I sort of treat it. I realize now as axiomatic that why we we are reading anti-colonial thought and philology together. Um, I have plenty of justifications for that, but I, I, it never felt to me to be an urge. It felt to me when I read, when I you know, just perhaps by virtue of reading them at the same time in my life, you know, my my early twenties, um, you know, that they went together naturally. Uh, and I maybe and it sort of did the work to justify that perhaps a, a little bit uh, in the book, but it, but it, the book really treats sort of acts as an axiom, as a kind of grounding axiom that these these two bodies of thought. Which are wildly different, anti-colonial thought and philology, simply should be put together. Put should simply already are in conversation, or just you know, just should be, but not with a kind of, you know, not with the force of a kind of academic intervention <laughs> in the first instance. So I mean, uh, 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 Ramsey McGlazer really helpfully called this an offbeat pairing. I mean, so it's a it's a pairing that, but I have to admit that it, it's a pairing that I didn't think about needing. I didn't think about it being counterintuitive. I didn't think about it being necessary. I I, I thought about it as sort of true to me, <laughs> um, uh, which is to say. But the, I think that there are really important reasons for doing it. Right? So I don't think I I wasn't just kind of 
floundering in the dark. So maybe I was also doing that. Um, but I was, I mean, I think I think anti-colonial thought and philology have a lot in common. And I think the those things are worth really foregrounding here. One is that they are contemporaneous. So you have this this emergence of comparative philology in um Germany and France, mostly in the 1920s and 30s. And at the same time, you have you have this is when Gandhi and Bhagat Singh and Baker's career and um, takes off. Uh, you have uh, a large part of comparative philology are Jews writing under the context of Nazism, and so they what they are trying to imagine is a literature, a world literature um, that. Would survive them. I mean, quite, this is the this is the pathos of a lot of early comparative literature texts coming in out of Germany and France. Uh, and you have in 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 India, you have a group of people who are writing about a world that should exist after colonialism. So you have two. You know, so you have on one hand an aesthetic project uh, which is inherently political, and you have a political project which is in, is necessarily aesthetic. And by putting those in conversation, I think that they re they 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 reveal the. The, the the that commitment to a world that must be otherwise, and yet you know, that's kind of that, that that commitment is imbued with a this this sort of dismal realization, though also I think really revolutionary, that we won't live to see that world. It must exist, and we must fight for it. But we won't. It it seems unlikely that we'll make it, and so I think that. The, the, that seems to me to be the conversation that these two otherwise seemingly distinct, um, discrete um, bodies of thought have. I think that they belong in conversation, um, uh, but it's it, it sort of a kind of it's a sort of thing that happened and uh, that justification happened after the fact. After I have to work backwards from the fact that I just thought that they were so. Um, you know, the contemporaneity, the kind of shared political commitments, the shared aesthetic commitments. Um, I think are both you know very present throughout um, both bodies of thought. Uh, and now coming to um, this is the people that you have discussed in quite detail, uh, and you have brought together Lala Hartdal, um, B.R. Ambedkar, M.J. Gandhi, and Bhagat Singh to analyze anti-colonial thought and practices in South Asia. Um, so the question begs, why these four and among all of the anti-colonial thought that is there. Yeah, the, I mean, so there are, I mean, there's so many fantastic anti-colonial thinkers to 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 read, to to, to read slowly. Um and it, it and you know, you most books require that you choose, I mean, most studies require that you choose maybe four or one or two. Um uh so there's the, I mean, because that conflict. I mean, when I was um I mean, one thing that I think is a is a, um, I think the book you know the book is you know is absent you know and, and embarrassingly so from the women who were the colleagues of all of these anti-colonial thinkers, um, uh, and who they treated as comrades and 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 also adversaries and also friends. Um, this book is a is a, a man-heavy book. I think the reason that that is nevertheless important. And the reason why these four thinkers are stand out is that what I was interested in doing was taking the most kind of masculine seeming founding fathers of India, or the kind of you know, the, the like the founding fathers of India and in some kind of um you know, like magisterial master or mastery sense, 
and showing that they themselves, despite this kind of overwhelming kind of posthumous masculinity, posthumous hero, uh, hagiographic worship that has been placed upon them, were theorizing their own less, uh, they were theorizing their own inconsequence and their their own insufficiency and their own imperfection in a way that the, like these kind of masculinist hagiographic approaches tend to totally ignore. And so they were theorizing away from their own masculinity. Um, are they someone like Gandhi was in fact very kind of overtly theorizing away from his own masculinity, often to somewhat clunky results. But the, but you know even someone like Pagat Singh who has this kind of wildly you know bomb throwing hero you know aura about him right it was was also theorizing you know, um also you know, debating with his colleagues about how many eggs to eat he was also having crushes on Bollywood actresses he was doing all these things which were just simply what he, he would do as a normal person he's 20 years old but he but these were these are the things that get written out of the stories we tell about anti-colonial activists they get they when we want to make them the heroes we, when we want to make them the great men of history we often these are the first things that go because they they are insufficiently masculine they're insufficiently heroic they're insufficiently political and i was wanting to actually really foreground these these insufficiencies as the basis of an anti-colonial politics, which I think that that was the case for these four thinkers. So, you know, so in some ways, I chose the most kind of overtly masculine or most overtly masterful thinkers of anti-colonial thought in order to actually show that they themselves were not committed to that uh, and, and were in fact committed to the opposite, were committed to kind of theorizing, um, you know, a much quieter, a much more um, or less recognizably political politics. Um, and uh, I now coming to the world literature, and I was curious why you used world literature as a term because, um, for example, Goethe would say, you know, I could pick a book from any part and then compare them, which and it has been correctly pointed out. I'm not the first one to say is is that it undermines uh the complex political colonial uh, social forces that brought these texts these translations into europe and how can we now use world literature to do exactly the opposite which is to further our comprehension of world literature's anti-colonial mission how do, how do we do this switch i think it's about understanding what i, mean, I, I think it's, so maybe one way of saying the one way of putting it would be to say that world literature stands to me as something that is is theorized to be impossibly masterful. And and yet, when we go back to some of the founding texts in world literature, even we kind of think about what world literature is and what we do when we say we do world literature, it's actually kind of grounded in a wildly insufficient practice. I mean, so first off, no, the project of world literature to read the books of the world is is an absurdly impossible project and 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 what you find is a lot of people really early on and uh, certainly in, like in the comparative philology world were really committed to foregrounding the impossibility of it right so, so you, on one hand you of course you have a Goethe who can pick up a Chinese novel and or Chinese you know a, 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 you know or like Hafez or something like this uh and you you there's this you know that, that gloss of mastery about being able to pick up any novel and understand all of the world all of the world all of the literature but you, I think Equally, so you have a, a great tradition of people who say this. I, I'm a human. Uh, even if the twenty of me were not going to read 
all of the world and its literature. And what you know, and and why don't we start from that? You know, why don't we start from a project which is going to be perpetually incomplete, perpetually insufficient, and and build up for that? Or you also have a, a, you have a project where world literature is not a given thing, right? But rather a thing that should exist in a world to come, a world that is after fascism. And so one of the world literature is uh, is a world is is, a, is literature for a world that is properly worldly, um, and, that, and that's that's another strain. But the dominant strain, you're absolutely right, is one of uh, of that's rooted fundamentally in nationalism. I mean, even from, from Goethe's Romanticism to uh, to anthologies of world literature for American university students, these are projects which are about fundamentally instilling a certain nationalist sentiment. I mean, the rubrics of world literature, the, the uh, uh, syllabi of world literature, all country-based, right? We read German novels, we read French novels, um, and they rely heavily on the national sentiment. That's what, I mean, that's that's very much what Goethe was about in his own way, uh, and certainly what Goethe has been taken up to be. And the Nazis, uh, B. Venkatmani uh, has shown, right, the Nazis were really committed to world literature, about the literature as one of the world-conquering projects. So, I mean, I think, on one hand, right, I'm interested in reviving that tradition where we start with world literature as a fundamentally impossible project, uh, where we don't know what the world is, we don't know what literature is, and we simply read in hopes of putting that together, or, or to, you know, to in, in conversation with colleagues around us and conversations with colleagues to come, conversations with friends we'll never meet. Um, and I'm also interested, I mean, I, th I think somewhat stubbornly then, you could also say, I'm also interested in taking two projects which were, so anti-colonialism and world literature, two projects which were famously invested in nationalism and reading them without nationalism. Um, so I think, you know, what happens when we read li world literature as a non-nationalist project, what, uh, somewhat stubbornly and somewhat more stubbornly, perhaps, what happens when we, going against a lot of, you know, historiography and, and anti-colonial thought, what happens when we read anti-colonial thought without Without as though it's not nationalist, or as though nationalism is not a solved, not an answered question. Right? So in that sense, I mean, it's a it's a sort of stubborn project in that sense. But I think I do think that there's a project in world literature that's been there from the beginning, um, which might be slightly quieter than the more domineering imperial approaches, but which is one that is about fundamentally a different way of reading, a different way of doing criticism that is not about world coverage. Uh, it's not about uh, you know uh, you know imperial knowledge produced production, but rather one that's simply about critique and critique that's communal, critique that's collective, um, critiques that is um, that begins from point of of its own insufficiency and start you know, starts a project from that point rather than to start a project from the idea that all world that all of the literature in all of the world might be read and known and 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 comprehended. I think that that's the project I want to avoid. I think that's you know I think that is the that's the basis for a lot of as you point out very correctly, that's the basis for a lot of world literature syllabi and, and and goals. That that project I want to rethink. I want to I want to ditch that project in favor of something that's much quieter and much more um collective. In, in, in its form of criticism. Um, and now turning to Lala Hardial and his unique approach to reading. Uh, and there is this, again, this very intriguing incident where he is, he has immense fear of publishing his book in India. And surprisingly, when it went to the censors, they did not find it political at all. And I was thinking 
is that uh, an example to exemplify what you were saying about Fano as like being incomprehensible to the colonial thought? Um, and additionally, I'm interested in understanding the significance of uh, reading that uh, uh, Lala Hardial attributed to anti-colonial movement for the sake of the people who have not yet read the book. Yeah, thank you so much. That's 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 the those are two really helpful questions to put together. So, um, so with the I'll do work a little backwards. So, so reading for me is is the thing which anti-colonial. I I this it's, reading is the kind of location where I saw anti-colonial thinkers, the one the ones in this book, theorizing the radical egalitarian politics that I was talking about earlier. Right. So it's when I when I went to read these thinkers, what I found as the moment where they start to begin to theorize this radical egalitarianism uh, uh, that's both impossible and necessary and so on is was usually around is usually around when they talk about their own reading practices not when they talk about the not when they or when they theorize what they want to be doing when they read or what they think we should be doing when they read so they're not I'm not interested in empirical reading practices here but I'm interested in the theory of reading or how they theorize uh, reading in the work. So the book uh, that you're talking about is Hence for Self-Culture. Uh, um, it's a very curious book. It's it's You can still find it in, um, it, I, I found it in Delhi. And so it, it, it's available, I mean, so it's, I don't think it's fully out of print. It's not really, done, it's not a bestseller, but it's it's, a, it's around, you can get yourself a copy. Um, Hardayal wrote it in a, considerably after he had left the Gadar party and uh, had, had, had moved to Europe, he had, been to, he'd been to Turkey and he'd been to Germany and he, he, had, he had a tumultuous set of years. And then he publishes this book in 1934. Um, and and he, he means it truly as, so the book is called Hence for Self-Culture. It begins with this kind of process of self-cultivation, which looks vaguely like a 19th century self-cultivation guide, uh, but then moves really, really kind of quickly to this really broad uh, imagination for what a world state might look like rooted in friendship. Um, and so, you know, it's this idea that you know, we we do these things, we, we self-cultivate in favor of this production of a kind of transnational, internationalist world um, to come, such that you know, they will look back upon us and say, wow, they, they did the work. Not that we would live there, but, but in fact, that the future generation would, would send us back an acknowledgement of some sort. Not for that, but that would be the thing. Right? So, um, the book is 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 a curious book, as I said. So it has chapters on you know how many times you should chew food, what food you should eat, what languages you should learn, what genres of books you should read, uh, and and all of these things. Who you should read with, and I mean, it's really actually very invested in reading. Um, Lala Hadayal thought it was considered it to be political, but was very anxious about his publication in the, in the India because he was trying to actually to get back to India. He'd been kicked out, he'd been exiled. Um, the British censors read it and deemed it, as you said, in, insufficiently political. I think the, I, I think regardless of the decision, I think what's curious about that, this, what's curious about it, is this this concept of the insufficiently political, which I think we have retained even as we've moved from a colonial reading practice, like the British did in this moment, to an anti-colonial reading or post-colonial reading practice, where we have a rubric for what counts as political that is inherited from the British Raj, not from anywhere else. And so when we read, it, when we read a text and we deem it to be insufficiently political or improperly political, 
I think what we're doing is a really serious, I mean, in once in one sense, it's it sort of saved hardly all at this one instance, but I mean, it, 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 it owns, it, it owes its, um, it, it, that, that kind of form of reading is indebted to a colonial practice of surveillance and, and critique, not another one. And so I think I wanted to, I wanted to show that we, the, the way that we have always read how they are, as you know, one part is the other party, which is properly political. The other part is this kind of weird, flimsy, new agey, how they are, which is writing in Sweden, um, is improperly political. I think that that is a false binary that we have to give up, I think, for, for proper post-colonial criticism. I think we cannot rely on this rubric of the insufficiently political that we've been handed from the British Raj to understand how we read texts. We have to think of, we have, to, in other words, what we have to do is we have to take as truth the fact that for Hadayal, this was a very political book, and we have to work out from that what political means in this context, not apply our own rubrics for whether, and then judge it as to its insufficiency. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, then, then the project begins, what about this book is political? And because certainly for Hadayal it was, and how do we read this book as, you know, it, it, and then that is a different reading practice, I think, that we have to think through, right, than, uh, than the one that, the, that allowed it to pass the British censors. No, that's what I was trying to get at. And that leads very nicely into um, the, the reading materials of Bhagat Singh, uh, which have not been given sufficient uh, attention because of non-instrumentality, which we can compare with not being political enough, not bringing out his you know masculinity of uh, being that bomb uh, thrower. Um, and how... Can you elaborate on what this non-instrument, this theory of non-instrumentality entails when we read Bhagat Singh? Yeah, so for Bhagat Singh, what I did, I mean, the methodology for each chapter is a little different, or kind of how I approach each thinker is a little different. For, for Bhagat Singh, what I was interested in doing was reading his jail notebooks. Uh, and so these are not the kind of more, these are not the philosophy of the bomb, this is not why I'm an atheist. Um, these, are, these are his jail notebooks. And what we have what just what, what post-colonial criticism has tended to do is read these journal books as proof of the of his eventual mastery that he was studying communism that he was studying the Bolsheviks that he was studying the the Irish Republican Army that he was studying these to be a master of anti-colonial activism to be a master of worldwide socialism and so on. But the 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 notebooks themselves are. N not that. <laughs> I mean, they uh, he they are a document of his reading practices. They are notes that he's taking from books. They are quotes that he's copied down. Um, while he is in jail and sentenced to life, and beyond the point in which he had, I mean, and and, and at a point in which he had accepted that he would be hanged at the age of twenty three. Um, I mean, it, this was a moment where he was not reading for eventual mastery, and the eventual mastery that we wish for him. Was is this kind of fantasy that we have? Had he lived on, you know, had he lived, he would have written four books about communism. We don't. I mean, that, that's 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 an admittedly very alluring thing to to speculate about. But what we have here is a journal, a, a notebooks of notes of is something that looks like more like a commonplace, right? Where Pagat Singh has copied down uh, direct quotes. He's kind of you know made some remarks here and there. But it's really truly a document of not of eventual mastery, but actually current uh, you know, inexpertise, current noviceness. Um, 
And and I think by wanting by kind of foregrounding that in the journal book, Pocketing is kind of gesturing or pushing us to think sort of differently about the the project of anti-colonialism as one of mastery versus one of you know an expertise in the present. This was an anti-colonial project for Pocket Singh, and so trying to take seriously what that means then is is I think the goal that uh, is, is, it should be the charge of um, our, our, our criticism, our way of uh, our, our analysis. Um, the reason I think that I mean I think well, so I think I think the 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 what makes that project that what makes that project worthwhile is is Puget Sound's commitment to the non-instrumentality, non-instrumentized, non-usefulness of um, uh, of reading. Reading is not a useful practice. It does not produce anything. It's not instrumentalizable. Um, But rather, it's sort of pleasure in and of itself. It's a pleasure in the present. It's a way of actually, I mean, it's certainly for Puget Sound, it's a way of interacting with his friends and comrades. They read and then they discussed and they debated and they argued. This 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 is a way of being with friends as you were waiting for a death, which you were certain, you were, you were completely certain would arrive, and very soon. And so, this is not a this is this this is a non instrumentalized non instrumentalized. You said it much better. Like I, I I can type it. I can't write it. Uh, a non a non useful a non um it, it it's not pragmatic in, in you know in that sense. It's it's um uh. It's non utilitarian, right? I mean, it's it's, it's it's a it's a way of thinking about anti colonialism. It's a way of thinking about revolution. I think for Puget Sound, more importantly, it's a way of thinking about revolution, um, which is not about uh, the number of utils it will eventually accrue or the value it will eventually be worth, uh, but rather uh, the 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 value in and of itself in the moment in the present. Uh, it, 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 in that sense, right? That's the revolutionary project of reading that Puget Sound, I think is 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 gesturing towards. Mm. And comparability is also um, to this non-usefulness is Gandhi's reading for failure. Uh, can you also elaborate on why failure, uh, reading for failure um, is what, how we can understand better Gandhi's reading practices? So, I mean, I think Gandhi has, a, I mean, Gandhi has a, a much different approach. I think what Gandhi is trying to think through is is tr- is, is uh, a, a form of inexpertise um, you know, perhaps I mean, which is invested in reading or you know, committed to reading, a form of an expertise which is about being treated, given up as immature, given up as foolish. Um, uh, all of these practices. I mean, so, you know, I think what's exciting about a lot of the work and um, around Gandhi has been that uh, it's it's done really brilliant things to kind of elucidate his thought. It's, it's connected it to other kind of thinkers in the in the world at the time, both, I guess, both in the 19th but also more contemporary thinkers like uh, Hannah Arendt or Derrida. But I think the, I mean, what I find to be exciting, and I, as I, I, and I, I, as I completely admire all of that work, I'm, and, 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 and I'm indebted to it. Um, but I, what I find exciting to Gandhi is actually where we can't help him out of his own mess. He comes up, he creates situations which he is bound to mess up. Uh, he creates situations in which he is open, guaranteed to fail, and he creates situations where he's like the, simply the logics of Hemsa, the logics of Satyagraha, logics of Satyagraha. My God, those are those. They're not. They don't. They don't work. We can't solve them for Gandhi. And I don't think that. I mean, it's very clear throughout Gandhi's writings that Gandhi didn't want them solved. He enjoyed the mess of of his philosophy, and so I wanted to think through what it means to be. To, to treat Gandhi like the mess that he says he is, right? Uh, I mean, I think 
I, I, you know, I think a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of criticism of the of that chapter has been about me trusting Gandhi a little too much, right? I mean, he he often uses this as a kind of evasive tool, um, you know. Uh, and it gets him out of a lot of trouble sometimes. You know, oh, I'm I'm just foolish. Don't don't listen to me when he's actually doing something quite authoritative in that moment. That's true. I just wanted to take seriously the possibility of what it means to make a messy philosophy and to use that as a basis for an insufficient revolutionary politics. Right. So again, this is about imperfection. It's about insufficiency. It's about um, in Gandhi's case, I think I think Gandhi really was really trying to push towards this kind of really wildly radical. But extreme form of inexpertise and foolishness and noviceness and that that you know, that that led him to some again some really clunky outcomes and some clunky places but that that theory of the wildly insufficient the wildly immature the 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 wildly inexpert the wild wild and wild and expertise right i think is really exciting as a way of grounding an anti-colonial politics that i think is, we should we should be paying more attention to rather than trying to figure out how to make gandhi's anti-colonial politics logical or makes sense or be worth something. I think that's anything we might take a moment to go back with Gandhi uh, and be a little bit foolish. Um, which leads me to read Hinsarajan a different way. Uh, so you know, the book that he wrote in 1909 and then 1939, he said he wouldn't change a word, right, is this dialogue between, you know, it's dialogue about, um, you know, uh, India under self-rule, um, which is between an editor and a reader. And we kind of tend to think, because the, the, the editor is making um, a lot of the points, that the reader is someone, uh, you know, perhaps the British, perhaps more revolutionary thinkers, perhaps even Nehru sometimes or whatever. And the editor is Gandhi, right? But I think what we find when we read, when we read Hintaraj over the course, we could have tracked alongside Gandhi's career is that Gandhi was really gesturing towards being the reader and having the authorities be somewhere else. So the dialogue is not so clear cut, a kind of uh, Gandhi, the editor, the reader, just someone who's uh, recalcitrant. But but knowing what we know about Gandhi's recalcitrance, right? Gandhi, I think, wanted to, was gesturing towards being the reader himself. So I, I think that. Uh, I think that's the way to kind of think through a different, a, a, again, a project of an expertise that Gandhi might be, that Gandhi was certainly thinking through. Um, you know, at the same time, and these are, again, I mean, to be clear, all of these thinkers are simultaneously theorizing really grand heroic gestures. Bhagat Singh is arguing about books at the same time he's throwing bombs. I'm not trying to separate these. I'm not trying to um, hide one or the other, but I, I want to kind of foreground the ones that we tend to, that tend to drop out. And that's what I'm doing here with Gandhi. Yeah, and this, I mean, this, this failure is is also interesting when we come to, to the last thinker, which is Ambedkar, and you have portrayed with great clarity that these anti-colonial thinkers did not live long to see their idea in fruition. And when we come to Ambedkar, he um, did not succumb to uh, despair or nihilism, rather embrace this um hope uh, of non-theological egalitarianism um admits the sad reality um that uh, post uh, independence of india presented itself um to to help those who are listening here could you elaborate on what this means when we read for example ambedkar's uh, 
I mean, not Ambedkar's failure as in that the country's failure in front of what Ambedkar's project was? Well, I, huh, that's a very good question. I think, um, how, I, I guess, um, well, this would be, I mean, this would be how I, I mean, so Ambedkar was constantly critical of, um, of nationalist anti-colonialism, precisely because he did not see that there would be difference between uh, Dalits being uh, ruled by the British or Dalits being ruled by Brahmins. Um, and certainly what you see as he presents his the draft constitution, which is this brilliant document for you know, which has all of these kind of you know juridical activism on protect you know for the protection of um scheduled castes and lower castes and untouchable people. Um, you know, on in the meantime of the you know as we are on the way to eradicating caste entirely. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it has this kind of it's a really beautiful document. And what he watched, I mean, it's not only what he kind of watched uh, come true in some sense, right? Is, is the the caste and the uh, the oppression of caste, the injustice of caste, um, and the lives of Dalits didn't change, um, you know, substantially between you know. Uh, the British Raj and um, you know and post independent India, um, and and certainly as he watched the, his constitution be drafted and drafted and drafted further away from him, I mean this became a realization. So I mean, but and 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 in some ways, I mean this is this is precisely what his turn. I mean, it wasn't a, it was not a turn at that moment to Buddhism. It was a long lifelong reflection on Buddhism. But Buddhism opened up this possibility to leave that moment and leave with others and yet stay committed to Dalits who could not leave, right? And so this kind of really wild, really kind of imaginative reworking of Buddhism for an anti-caste politics and for Dalit solidarity. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think, I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I, there are places, there are plenty of places where Ambedkar is overtly critical of Nationalist anti-colonialism. There are plenty of places you know, after forty-seven, before he dies, uh, where Ambika is critical of the Indian government. I think what I'm, I mean, what I'm really into, what I find fascinating in, about about Ambika in this moment is is not really, I mean, is, is not that. Though I mean, I, I I I'm interested in that in a separate way. But here, I was really interested in the book. I was really interested in how he theorizes a. a an anti-caste politics as an anti-authoritarian politics, and so it's so in so in some ways what he does. I mean, and then what he does you know, by this kind of really brilliant philological reading of of you know these kind of of, of Manishmiti, right, is that he actually shows that an anti-caste politics is anti-colonial because it's because caste politics is so committed to a certain type of colonial politics, um, you know. And and the, you know, the kind of Orientalism of Sanskrit instruction and uh, and translation and you know, under the British East India Company to the British Raj and so on. So what he's doing is not simply just kind of refusing caste, but he's actually showing the complete like illog the, the the complete irrelevance I would say of its own authority. Right at the center of caste's authority is Manu and his laws. The Manushmiti gives all of these laws and, and authorial practices for how one authoritative practices for how one should do caste um, and how one should perpetuate caste injustice. What Ambedkar finds when he goes to read Manushmiti and he does this beautiful reading of the Manushmiti, which just shows it's it is it's 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 a mess. It's a it's an irrelevant document. It's it's nonsensical in a way that is 
it, it, it reveals its own nonsense. Uh, 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 and so what is, so there's this, the, 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 insanity of the madness the madness of Manu and Victor's words the insanity of caste right is that it relies on an authoritative practice that its authority does not can't hold up and so you know this kind of the, the authority of caste the authority of colonial structure um you know these are these are not simply it's one thing to refute them and to kind of stage your own but I mean, the risk I suppose you would run would be you know asserting a, a new authority in place of the old but what Victor does really brilliantly and just it's it, it really beautifully is uh, is really show that at the heart of caste's authority uh, and a caste authoritative power is actually there's no, there's nothing there's no there's no there's no there there uh, can't, the center doesn't exist uh, and so you know caste authority is completely irrelevant and so the, the annihilation of caste is not one of refuting caste but rather one of annihilating it making it totally irrelevant i think that's i mean i think that that's ambiguous kind of brilliant brilliant insight here um that, that was my reading in that chapter thank you for this clarification now um we're almost at the end and since this book was published almost three years ago two and a half something like that um and you had had some opportunity to have some feedback from the readers. Um, but I would like to here give an opportunity for you um, to say, um, what do you hope the readers take from this book? How do you hope the readers read this book? I, uh, I mean, I have been, I've been so incredibly lucky to have interacted with readers who read it in ways that I couldn't have imagined that they would. So I don't, I I, mean, I I feel like saying the things that I want readers to do would just actually be boring at this point. The the readers that I've had, I, I, again, I've been it's, it's been really really amazing. The readers that have engaged with the book um, have engaged with it in ways that I have really made me rethink a lot of the work. I mean, I I I I I, <laughs> I stand by the book in some sense, but uh, you know, I I've been pushed to think in many different ways. People like. Um, Ajay Skoya, Shruti Kapila, uh, uh, and uh, and have really kind of challenged the kind of way that I've thought about these thinkers on the same page. I mean, I would like to, kind of, that would be one thing I'd want to revisit. Um, and other thinkers have, I mean, other people that I've heard from, other readers have just pushed the book to do things that I didn't think the book could do. And so it's, it, it's in some ways, that's the reading that I, if I, if I were to imagine what I wanted, it it doesn't compare to what I've seen happen in some of the readings, and responses, and and criticisms that have really made the book more exciting than I thought it could be, um, and I've been really grateful for that. I think, um, you know, I, I I think that the uh, yeah the, the the way that I've been made to think about the book in the in the past three years, you know, after its publication, I you know, I thought maybe the book was done. Um, and the book is in many ways done, but I, I really, the, the, the engagements, the criticisms, the responses have been so helpful for me to go back and actually think about what I was doing there and how I, you know, and, and, and for me, that's, that's, that's been absolutely, that's been the best part about having written the book. It's this, the, it's not fun to write a book for yourself it's fun to read it's right now you, you want to write a book for others um uh and you know the academic monograph has a number of different tasks that it must perform in the institution of cat in the academy uh and yet i've i've been able to have this book do something 
slightly different by having a you know a, a set of engaged readers who, who've made it much more exciting than me talking into the void, um, hearing my voice repeated back at me. I, I, I yeah, a book about. I mean, you you would think that it's a bit idiotic that a book about someone who writes a book about readers being revolutionary isn't surprised that re readers are revolutionary, but and that's a fun thing to be surprised idiotically surprised by repeatedly. So I've been that's been really exciting. Yeah, and the last question, as always, what are you working on right now? What do we hope from you to read in the future? So I'm working on a few books uh, uh, simultaneously, uh, which is a bit mad. But I think uh, the first, the next kind of academic book is one about anti-colonial soci anti-colonial sociology. So it's a book that charts the ways that uh, anti-colonial thinkers took up. Early, soci early 20th century sociology and its messiness and its vibrancy and used it to imagine an, a post-colonial, decolonial world. So this, this is most obviously in Baker, who studied at Columbia. Uh, it's also in Krumah, uh, it's Kenyatta, um, it's Franz Fanon. Uh, and so I'm interested in then, what I'm interested in here is in some ways that what I was getting at a little earlier with this kind of what, what world, how do you act on the post-colonial world, the post-colonial, the post-independent world, the post-independence world, and that you know, through the decolonial wave of the mid-20th century, right, was one where technically post the, the colonial, anti technically anti-colonialism won, but what it won was a world that was wildly far away from the world that it had envisioned and fought for. So it's a kind of technical win, but not you know not a win for you the utopian strain of political philosophy that had promoted it right and and so I, what i'm finding is that these kind of anti-colonial thinkers these post-colonial thinkers these post-independent thinkers uh post-independence thinkers uh turning back to their training in sociology to 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 use the concepts of you know shared shared consciousness um social you know cohesiveness solidarity all of these things all these thinkers are turning to those to reimagine a world that still yet must come. So you know, even in this moment of the 1950s and the 1960s, these thinkers are still pushing at the possibility for new modes of solidarity, new modes of political affiliation, new modes of political community that are rooted in shared consciousness, that are rooted in, in conscience and contrasts. Um, you know, these include the kind of more obvious things like uh, Ben Dong and Afro-Asian solidarity, but actually, and I'm much more interested in the kind of quieter things that are like the kind of tentative Pan-Africanisms the the proposals to the League of Nations uh, and the UN for nations which weren't nations. So all of these kind of modes of, of political belonging that aren't the nation, um, but rather rely on this kind of more amorphous sense of solidarity uh, of, that that can be kind of captured under society uh, as it was theorized in the early 20th century. So that's that's the that's that book. I'm also working on a book about my uncle who died from HIV in H HIV AIDS in 1993, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to write a book about his life and you know how his life uh, uh, as an out gay man in the 1980s as a German professor as the as a as a German wine expert in, in the late 80s how all of you know how his life has shaped uh, mine and my family's uh, and that that's that's a that's a project which is really really important to me as well. Both sound like wonderful projects and I'm sure I will read them both when they're published. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today and I wish uh, you all the best for the projects. Thank you. Thank you.